the book of Lamentations um, about the poet's pain. And we'll fill some of those gaps in a little bit. I think today's message is going to be maybe a little bit different than, than what we what we normally try to do. I want to read, just by way of introduction, a couple things to you. One of them is just a paragraph here from the end of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And um, he ends... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not as smart as he is, so I, I can't figure some of this stuff out. But this is his concluding prologue, um, concluding unscientific prologue. He says, I started this book by declaring that it was not to be read as either a lament or a polemic. Certainly, from the perspective of Orthodox Christianity, there's no shortage of things about which I could lament or polemicize. From the casual pornification of the culture to the rampant fragmentation and crass worldliness of the church herself. You, um, again, can't belabor all of, you know, emphasize all of these points, but um, you, you, don't even, you don't have to look any farther than the Super Bowl to have something to lament. I don't mean the outcome of the game. It says, uh, and lamentation and polemic have their place. It is important to know that this world is not our home, that things are not as they should be. We are strangers in a strange land. I can't keep reading on here, <clears throat> but he goes on then through, that's just the beginning of this chapter where he lists some things that can be done and onto steps that offer some solutions and some just uh, <clears throat> excuse me and some suggestions and a reminder that Jesus is still lord of all but he begins by talking about lamentation so if you've opened your bibles to the book of of lamentation that's good uh, but i want to take you to second peter before we go there, okay? So keep your, keep your finger there if you've got it there, or if you've got one of those electronic devices, just scroll away. Um, <laughs> you'll get to it. I, I want to read to you, um, I, I'm going to read quite a bit from Second Peter chapter 2. Now keep in mind that Peter is writing to believers. This is not a, a judgment like you, you, you read in Isaiah or Jeremiah where he's, he's telling this to peoples who don't serve God. He's writing this to believers. Second um, Peter 2, verse 14. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the whole, excuse me, upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
You don't hear very much of that in churches anymore. But I want you to remember, this is, this is Peter. This is, this is not an Old Testament prophet. And he continues, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. I think I'm going to quit there. We could go on. He, he goes on to talk about more things that bring judgment. I, I mark that sort of stuff in my Bible in blue, and it's, the rest of this paragraph is all speckled with, with blue markings. The reason I wanted to read that was, one, to give you a New Testament perspective on, on a couple things that we're going to talk about, and to show you that there were two aspects of this. One was the righteous judgment of God. If God is righteous... And one of his attributes, if God is righteous, he must bring judgment. Now, as Christians, we understand that that righteous judgment was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ became that sacrifice, that he is the propitiation, that he paid for our sins. He took the punishment for our transgressions the New Testament says. But for those who reject Jesus, there is still a judgment to come. Now, if I had read on here, um, you, would find, you would find out that Peter says that there, are even some, there were some who were coming and were defiling their feasts. And so he's talking about those first century love feasts that they had, or perhaps even their sharing of the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. So there were wicked, ungodly people in among those who called themselves believers, apparently. So judgment. The second thing is, to the righteous, unrighteous is a vexation. Let me rephrase that. I kind of used the wrong word. To the righteous, unrighteousness is a vexation. It is a grievance. It's a pain. It's something that sickens us. We have to be careful, and we'll look at this before we get through, that one of the things we have to do is examine ourselves. But when we look around us at the culture, and one of the things I read, and I thought it was interesting that Truman used the word pornification, of our culture, when we look around us and we see all this going on. There was probably a reason Lot was sitting at the gate of the city as the gates were getting ready to be closed, which they did in those days, so that he could rescue people like those two angels who came from being thrown in to the, the terrible cesspool that was that particular city at that particular time. So <clears throat> just a, a little bit of perspective, and we'll go back to the book of Lamentations. 
and we'll talk to you a little bit about that. It's such a, an opportunity. I'm, I'm going to read to you uh, uh, from a, a, a book here. It's such a privilege um, and an opportunity to, to, um, to share with you. There really is no greater, um, at least from my perspective, privilege than to be able to stand to you to you stand before you and open the open the word of the Lord. So just to kind of give you um, a little introduction as to what's going on in the book of Lamentations, only five chapters, um, but it, it is it is an emotional response to the aftermath of the tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem. So we read how how Jeremiah prophesied, "Don't do this." Don't do this, don't do that. And eventually he said, you know, you guys need to surrender. Eventually, as we read toward the end of the book, and this was also accounted in other old, in earlier Old Testament books that are earlier placed in our, in our Old Testament, the, the city fell to the Babylon, Judah eventually fell to the Babylonians, and they, they had puppet kings, and then they put in a governor, and then the people fled from them and went to Egypt. Eventually Babylon conquered all that area, including Egypt, and um, brought destruction. They tore everything down. Everything was destroyed. Uh, we won't have the opportunity today to read all of the detail of all of that, but the poet, whoever it was, who wrote Lamentations, was uh, uh, profound and powerful in their description not just literally but in their emotional description he uses phrases in there that that connect you emotionally to the devastation that went on um so that's our introduction this is it's an emotional response to the destruction of Jerusalem now counter to that the destruction of Jerusalem was God's judgment on their abandoning him. They left him. And again, we've covered this in previous times. They left, left him and got involved in idolatry. They left him in their relationships and got involved in adultery. And we'll look as we see if we have an opportunity to touch on it today. In Lamentations, it even talks about the corrupt priests and the bloodshed that was going on. So it, it, they, they left God and God let judgment come. And in the, in the result of that judgment was that we have this book of brokenness and broken heartedness. Now, we don't actually know who the author was. It's, it, it, earlier, it's attributed to Jeremiah. And, uh, um, and that may very well be, I kind of, I kind of hope it is. We don't, don't really know for sure. And one of the reasons we don't know for sure is because the book doesn't tell us. It doesn't say this is, you know, we call it the book of Jeremiah, but it doesn't say in there, I, Jeremiah, wrote this. So we, we don't really know. So it's not, it's not important that become, we become too dogmatic about it. The title, Lamentations, is, um, a play on the word how. It's, it is, was a word, the word how in Hebrew was used in mourning. So, um, it's how is the first words in chapters 1, 2, and 4. So, that's how we got the word lamentation. And uh, you say, well, how is 
uh, in a, a word of mourning. Well, it's used in the sense of how did this happen? How can this be? Um, anyone who's ever gone through a terrible, traumatic circumstance asks a couple questions. One is why, one is how. Then they say, what What are we going to do now? And, and they run through those questions in their heads. Um, chapter 3 is an individual lament. And chapter 5 is a community lament. So it's very possible that this, this book was used in, 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 a, in a community worship sort of aspect. Much like the Psalms were often used for... Uh, 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 Jewish worship. Um, it is an acrostic for the most part in its structure. So let me just read to you here from this book so I don't mess it up. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The first four poems, and that's, um, well, we'll talk to you about it, but the first four poems are alphabetical acrostics. Chapters 1 and 2 contain 22 verses of three lines each. And the first word of each verse begins with a different Hebrew letter. In chapter 4, each verse has two lines. Chapter 3 is the most tightly constructed, for its 66 verses are divided into 22 groups of three verses each, and each of the three begins with the appropriate letter. Even chapter 5, which is not in alphabetical form, seems to have been affected by the acrostic pattern. It also has 22 verses of one line each. Say, so, well, why did that happen? Because the poet was looking for things to express what words could not express. And... Uh, there are times I'm wonderfully pleased that we have poets that can help us communicate things that otherwise we wouldn't communicate. That we may feel them, and sometimes we read and hear and, and um, blessings in sometimes in, in song, and we and, and and we relate to it, and we say, "Yeah." Sometimes we say, "Wish I'd have said that," but you get the idea. Let me let me read to you just a, a couple of sections here about this. It says, um, Lamentations is by no means theologically barren. In the opening verse of the book, Jerusalem is personified. The city, once a proud and dignified woman, is now brutally raped, brutally raped, and abandoned by treacherous friends. This image is intensified by the use of the words and phrases like widow and queen and daughter a term of endearment that could be translated as cherished Jerusalem or fair Zion. So one of the, one of the devices the, the writer of uh, Lamentations uses is to, and, and, and he does so frequently, um, is to talk about this fair maiden, this fair bride who's been ruined and it, and it and at times, if you read it carefully, it's somewhat graphic. And it's terrible. Um, uh, 
There's a, there's a sentence here I want to read to you because uh, as we end this, I, I hope to, to come back to it. It says, It is a widespread human characteristic to desire the recovery of the irrecoverable. We have a common phrase, at least my mom did. I don't know that I used it very much, but she said, she would say, there's no use crying over... You didn't let me finish. Uh, I remember once the grief I had uh, as I was speeding through Fort Wayne at 55 mile an hour on a Sunday morning going to someplace south to preach... And I got pulled over, and I had to pay a speeding ticket. And I literally thought to myself, you know, it would have just been more beneficial if I had just thrown the money out the window. Okay? So we we have within us, and I I actually think it's a divine, one of these communicable things. (laughs) Put on your mask. We have this optimism in us. This positivism in us. I, I believe it comes from a, a spark of divine and the Almighty God who made us, who will one day make all things right, that we try to recover the, the irrecoverable. I, 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 we'll talk more about that here in a second, if I ever get to my actual message. Uh, it says, even where God is chided for his severity, in chap- like in chapter 2, the guilt which permeates the book is evident. The sense of tragedy is heightened by the recognition that the judgment was avoidable. Well, there's nothing worse than having a difficulty and realizing the difficulty was your fault. You knew better. You made a wrong choice. It's one thing to, to stumble into it and you didn't know, but it's another thing to, to have it working and you chose. And so, um, just a couple more things here. Here's another little, little excerpt. Human sorrow is therefore a major aspect of the theology of lamentations. It, ca- it can come to an individual or to a whole nation. There, there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. Which is what Paul tried to um, press upon those people in Corinth. And that one man especially, but to that church that was walking very carnally. And he wrote to him. he says, I hope I didn't make you sad, but if I made you sad... It was because I wanted a good thing to happen and there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. It says, I'll read on here, the events of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. highlight the larger biblical issue of humanity's ruin as a result of sin and disobedience to God. As Israel, Israel's future can be found only beyond death and destruction, so also humankind's hope can be found only in the finished work of Jesus and what he accomplished in 
his death. Every theological message of both the Old and New Testament point to the fact that God is righteous and will judge the unrighteous and that Jesus Christ came to take that judgment on himself. When, when we begin to use these scriptures as wonderful as they are to moralize and use them for other reasons and we miss, the, we, we miss that point, we're missing the main point of the Bible. It's all about the gospel in one form or another. So what, what I want to talk to you today about is a couple things, and I already introduced them and actually really talked about them quite a bit already. I want to normalize the emotional life of the believer. There used to be this old phrase, and it's kind of trite, but it, it, there is a, a, a very solid nugget of truth in it. It says, no, K, or excuse me, N-O, no Christ, N-O, no peace. And then, of course, the other side of it is no, no Christ, K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O-W, peace. There is no real peace in this world without Jesus Christ. There can be no peace with God without the sacrifice of Christ, which takes away the enmity between us and God. That's what the Apostle Paul said Christ's sacrifice did. It takes away that, that wall that's between us. And because, because the judgment or the wrath of God falls on, has fallen on Christ and not on us. Um, some of the greatest gospel messengers down through history have been tormented with their sin and failure. Uh, you, can, you can probably make the list longer than I have, but I, I thought about Peter who went from weeping bitterly to preaching the first sermon. Uh, I thought about the Apostle Paul, who after he was converted, looked back on his life, called himself a murderer, and talked about all the things he did in ignorance. I couldn't help but think of Martin Luther, who was tormented by his sin. And how when he came to realize that Jesus Christ had died for him, actually made a different person out of Martin Luther. Amazing, the transformation. The darkest, bleakest spot on the face of the earth can be in the heart of men, or the hearts of men. The Lord's been there, folks. He knows what we go through. He sweat He sweat blood. He wept. He was weary. I could give you all kinds of... He was exasperated. (laughs) You ever get exasperated? I mean, he was was exasperated with the disciples that he chose. (laughs) It's time to give you all those verses. So, get your your, uh, Bible here and open them... Open it to Lamentations. And we're going to skip down through here. Excuse me. And I I just, I'm going to point out some things to you. 
And it, there's going to be basically two columns of stuff. One's going to be God's righteous judgment. And um, the other is going to be how we respond to that. So let's talk about judgment first. Chapter 1, verse 8, or excuse me, verse 5. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now again, I don't have time to go into all of this. It says, as it continues in verse 5, her children have gone away, captives before the foe. So, it's just, and I'm not, I'm not even going to hit all of these examples of, of God's judgment that are here. But I just wanted you to see that what had happened to Jerusalem was be, uh, and, and Judah was because they had walked away from God. And God, because he's just, has to bring judgment. And if you remember, as we read toward the end of Jeremiah, even after Jeremiah was taken, taken against his will into Egypt, he prophesied, continued to prophesy against Judah, he prophesied against Egypt, and, and he prophesied against all those nations that lived around them that were ungodly. He even prophesied against Babylon and said, yes, God is using you to judge Israel, and when he's done judging Israel, he will judge you. There's always, there is always, God is a righteous judge, a righteous God, and there will always be judgment. So well, I don't like to hear about that judgment. Well, I know we don't like to hear about it. That's one of the reasons we have a, a church that's sick and emaciated and thinks the gospel's all about them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you? that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion. For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And again, I'm not going to read all this. I'm just pointing out that here's here's another area here where God says, "Here's judgment." I don't even know. I don't even know what to say to you. I don't know how to compare this. He said, "Your your your prophets are all false." Um, chapter three, verse forty-two: We have transgressed and rebelled. And you have not forgotten. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. Is that graphic enough? Now again, this is, this is some of this is the heart of, of, of the poet that's coming out and he's, he's using these descriptive terms to describe what's, what's going on. But again, justice always requires judgment. Let me back up to verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. 
Let us examine our... You can cross-reference that, by the way, with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where we've, that passage we read so frequently about communion, where he tells us in there to examine ourselves as we take of communion in an unworthy manner. I'm I'm trying to figure out if I should say something. I think I'll save it till later, maybe next year. Uh, (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 13. Let's look at verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Verse 13. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So we've got corrupt leaders and we've got bloodshed. Some of the things I mentioned earlier and again we don't have time to touch upon all these things. And then I just read that passage there from verse 10 and 11 just to kind of, you know, what's he lamenting? Well, this is what he's lamenting. There was a siege of Jerusalem and they ran out of people, food and people were starving and infants were dying. And then worse. Chapter 4, verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. Uh-huh. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Eden, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Now, chapter 4 ends with the realization that judgment eventually ceases. And that's what he's saying there. It's going to come to an end. It's going to be accomplished. And you'll be in exile no longer. And we know that if Jeremiah wrote this, that he also wrote that it would be 70 years. We've covered that in, in a lot, uh, several occasions. So here, here the judgment is fulfilled or it's completed. And the, whoever wrote this actually then went on to say, you know, judgment's going to come on Edom. Um, and that's an interesting story in itself. We're in time to cover all that. Look in verse 5, verse 11. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned into mourning. I'm going to quit reading there, but it it continues. So here you have not only the the individual suffering, but you've got death of a culture. There's no no one sitting at the gates, there's no governance, there's there's no wise men who are there, There's, there's no singing, there's no music, there's no dancing, there's no rejoicing. So that that whole part of the culture is gone. Uh, There's so much commentary. Uh, Folks, beware of the arts. 
Say which of them? All of them. Um, the arts are populated by people who think freely and in their free thinking they are usually the first ones who abandon the basic understandings of God. And uh, uh, without going into a lot of detail, if you've not yet seen it, I encourage you to get either the book or the video series. It may even be found in public domain out here. The series by Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? Where he goes through and, and he, he uh, pinpoints the decline of culture by looking at its art and its architecture, especially its art. until what used to be depictions of sometimes crudely done, but of God, now are masses of nothingness. And folks, it's, it's not just the visual arts. It's all sorts of things. And the reason I, I said that or what, what brought that to mind is because in abandoning God, the very thing these people celebrate gets destroyed. And that's the case not only with art, but with everything. Whatever we rejoice in without God is no longer worthy of rejoicing. All right, so let me go through just a couple of things here really quick. I want to talk to you now about the emotional side. Um, Some of these things that happen are not always good. And we can have things that go on in us um, because of what's happening. It's not always good. Remember, we gave, I gave you earlier the example of Lot. So things can be happening and we can respond to them and it may not be good, but it can still be godly. Chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me when the Lord inflicted on the day of, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So I want to just throw out here to you that in this ungodly world we live in, the righteous will experience sorrow. Verse 16. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And he he uses the term weeping there to accentuate the difficulty and the tragedy and and the judgment that's come, but but it's there. He talks about weeping. The psalmist talked about weeping. And sorrow. Say, well, there's things in this world that sadden me, and they should. And because you're saddened by them doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You know, in the New Testament, it teaches us that when we, when we, disobey God we grieve the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. 
Uh, there's motivation there for personal holiness and obedience. But the Holy Spirit himself gets grieved. And I already gave you a couple of examples of Jesus and others. Um, chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. I don't know, well, I probably shouldn't even say it this way, but I don't know what you're picturing there. But I'm picturing someone with dry heaves. I'm picturing someone who's, who, whose emotional state has so uh, uh, come over them that it's affected their body. And, and you know, his stomach churns. It says it very plainly. Now, if you're old enough in here, you've gone through that where you have made yourself sick or where things that have gone, have, things have gone on around you that have overwhelmed your body. Things you've perceived or heard or seen have overwhelmed your body. Say, well, is that, what, what does that mean? That's a normal response Chapter 3, let me give you just three or four things here as I'm going to read here from verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. So, you know, what I wrote next to that was anxiousness and turmoil. He says, I have forgotten what happiness is. The technical term for that is anhedonia. It's the inability to find enjoyment. It's, by the way, one of the signs of depression, whether temporary or, um, or, or long term. Look, read on with me. So I say, my endurance has perished. That that is one of the best definitions of depression I've ever heard. Someone described depression as emotional exhaustion. You're down in a pit and you can't get out and you can't see how to get out and you can't even think that you can get out. By the way, that's the next verse. So has my hope from the Lord. So he's also dealing with hopelessness. So, anxiety, turmoil, inability to enjoy things, depressed energy, and hopelessness. And then, he begins in verse 21. Let me, let me just read this. 21 of, of chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Don't start singing. (laughs) They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So he talks about hope. He talks about the the renewal of love and mercy. He mentions hope again. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Folks, there are things that happen around us and that will happen perhaps in our culture that we cannot change. We had no choice in it perhaps. We cannot affect it. And all we can do is trust in God. But we can, in our trust in God, realize that God is good. That God loves us. And that God will, even, even as we read earlier, he says there's a time when the judgment stops. Now, <laughs> let me draw something from this. It's not really said it in here, but I'm going to draw it out of here. You figure out whether or not it is correct or not. I think what it talks about, his mercies are new every morning. It's talking about going to sleep. Now, I have, I have a bunch of notes here that I, I don't have time to get into. I'm already past time here, but we live in a sleepless society. People a generation ago slept more than we do and people the generation before them slept more than they did. You know there are things that happen when you sleep to your brain? Did you know that? That your brain washes away toxins that got built up there in your brain during the day because you have children? (laughs) Or a boss? Or a spouse? Or because you have to look at yourself in the mirror? We live in a sleepless society. Now, I, I, I'm not going to go down through that. I don't have time to do that. But it, it, it's one of the most wonderful things that I have... That I've, and, I, and over the years, I'm, I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying to get better at it. I think, you know, I'm going to let this rest till what? Tomorrow. Things will look differently tomorrow. I would suggest this, that you plan your week based on the fact that tomorrow begins at dinner time. And don't rob from tomorrow. Do what you need to do. Now, you may work a shift that doesn't allow you to do that. I'm sorry, you'll have to do whatever you can to adjust to that. But um, there's a reason there are seasons that there's a time when our whole earth goes dormant where it's darker. And then we're now, I, I was just thinking of this, we're about two months after the darkest day and we can see that it's getting lighter and lighter out. It's because that light and that life is coming back and, and we're going to have this time of activity and out and lots of light and all sorts of things. But we, we need to run in those cycles. And I always, I always go back to this and I know that my evolutionist 
friends, micro or macro, don't like the idea. But I do believe that God made the earth in seven literal days because he said very specifically the evening and the morning were what? The first day. And when did, he, when did the day start? In the evening. By the way, when the Jews had their Sabbath, guess when their Sabbath started? In the evening. It went from evening to evening and it stopped. So if you are in such a place where you, you sleep at night and you work during the day, then don't rob from tomorrow tonight. Figure out how you can get to bed and get the sleep that you need. And please don't ask my wife if I do this. <laughs> Listen, go on, go on with me um, to chapter 3. He says, I call, verse 55, I called on your name from the depths of the pit. By the way, if Jeremiah wrote this, isn't that amazing? Because it was Jeremiah that they put down in the pit. Remember this? They lowered him down in the pit and there was no water in that well anymore or cistern. But there was mud and he sunk in the mud. I called on your name from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance and all their plots against me. And now he goes on to talk about it. But let me give you three things here real quick. Number one, it is, please pray. God hears you when you pray. And if you pray long enough, and, and um, I, I don't mean like from morning to sun, sundown, but, but, but continuously enough, you will hear from God. And that's what he says there. You heard my plea. I know you heard me. You want to get out of the doldrums and out of the dumps? Bodily exercise profits a little. But yoga is not your answer. Say, well, it's Christian yoga. There is no such thing. Say, well, they play Christian songs. Mumble, mumble. All right. So, pray. You, God will, God will answer. And when you hear Him, there will be some. They will. A spark will go off on the inside that none of the circumstances of life or the devil himself can take from you. He says, and, and look what he says. He said, he expresses faith. You came near when I called. And all of a sudden now there's faith there and there's hope. And, and folks, this is reiterated in the New Testament. These three things abide. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. And I don't, uh, again, there's too much here, and I'm not a psychologist, and I don't play one on TV or anything else, but I suggest to you that love comes from faith and hope. And I also suggest to you that we don't love unless we have somehow some connection in faith and hope. If we don't have that faith, remember the back, of, back to that little trite statement, no God, no peace, no God, no peace. If we're not connected to the Lord and trusting in Him, we're going to have a hard time loving anything but ourselves. And then He says, you've seen what's wrong, done. what's wrong, Lord. Judge me. We, we have to remember that this God of justice who is judging and is bringing all of these terrible things will also, 
we will also stand before Him and He will judge us and He will vindicate us. And for a believer, when we stand before Him, He's... I never say, you know, that he says of somebody, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm not their master. I can't make that judgment for other people. But I pray he says it for me. And even if he doesn't, he's going to say, enter into the joy of the Lord because you're one of my redeemed. <laughs> you just barely got in, buddy. But, but you're here. David wrote of grief and betrayal and fear and doubt, and etc. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Now, two things real quick and I'll close. Emotions can be wrong. You can be sad for the wrong reason. You can be fearful for no reason. You can be angry for the wrong reason. Most anger is selfish because it's about we didn't get our way. And that's the difference between our anger and 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 righteous, righteous anger. So, if someone says, well, it's what you feel, it can't be right or wrong, that's a lie. That's only true if you are God and you are not. And all of our emotions are judged by God's Word. And that brings me to the second point. Our emotions must be ruled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We don't act based upon our emotions we act based upon what we know is to be right according to the book. We may do things that we don't feel like doing because they're right. We may do things sometimes when our heart's not in it. And, 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 and the devil will jump on our shoulder, so to speak, and say, you're a hypocrite for doing this. No, you're not a hypocrite. You're just being faithful. You don't have to feel good about doing right. Feeling good about it doesn't make it right. It's right because it's Right. It's wrong because it's wrong. So the other, the other side goes, it goes the other way also. It, it doesn't make it right because you feel good about it. It's still wrong. You know, some people say, well, just follow your heart. Your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Lord as He reveals Himself to us in this book. Heavenly Father, you made us in your image. I I know that, you know, my theology book, that whole section there on anthropology tells me what that's supposed to mean. I read it and I still don't understand it. I got the impression the guy who wrote it didn't understand it either. We know that somehow you have endowed us with some attributes of yourself. Your word tells us how you feel compassion, how you feel anger and wrath, how you feel sorrow. And Lord, we do too. Yours are perfect and ours are broken. And, and because these emotions are so important to us, the world sometimes makes them the ultimate judge of whether things are right or wrong, and that's wrong. I pray, Lord, as we go through this week and this next month and the years to come, 
that when our soul is vexed, we'll turn to you. When there is sorrow, and maybe even so much that it makes us ill, we'll turn to you. We won't condemn ourselves. We'll just look to you and say, Lord, you made me. Here's what's going on. Have your way with your humble servant. And Lord, that's my prayer today. Have your way with us. In your name I pray. Amen.